Hello and welcome to The Long View, a podcast that takes a closer look at the games people play. The Long View is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Go and check out all of the great sister podcasts in the Dice Tower Network, as well as the flagship podcast itself at Dicetower.com. They have a newly indexed uh, website that is uh, truly wonderful. Uh, you can punch in the name of a game, and it will search it for you, and it will give you every podcast episode, every review, everybody who's ever said anything about that game will pop up for you, and you'll be able to take a listen or take a read and see what you think and gather some more information so it's a great resource for the community go check out dicetower.com the long view is generously sponsored by gamesurplus.com uh, please go and check out all they have to offer uh, tonight we're going to be talking about a game Vir Sin das volk and uh, last i checked yesterday velma still had a few copies of this in stock so if uh, the games you hear about on the show are something that you're interested in, please consider going to gamesurplus.com. Their prices are fantastic. Their customer service is actually kind of legendary, to be honest with you. If you're looking for anything, Velma and her family will track it down for you and get it shipped off to you super fast. So that's what you get when you go to gamesurplus.com. I also want to send a little shout-out to my local game store, The Gamer's Edge, in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. They have a growing collection of board games. I just picked up a copy of Maria there, of all things. Uh, not just the newest, latest, greatest, but classics like that as well. So go check out The Gamer's Edge in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, conveniently located off of Interstate 80 in the northeastern Pennsylvania region. So Gamer's Edge for a knowledgeable staff, great selection of games. Go check them out. My name is Jeff Gamble. I'm the host of The Long View, and today I am thrilled to be joined once again uh, by Martin Griffiths. So, uh, Martin, thanks for being on the show again, and uh, it's nice to get a chance to talk to you. Yeah, it's been a while, Jeff. It's good to be back. Yes, it has. Uh, you know, I, I was worried people were catching up to you there, Martin. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it certainly is a, a great uh, to have you back on the show, and especially talking about this game, because uh, I think in, in many ways you are kind of responsible for, uh, for putting this game on my radar. Um, the game, of course, that we're talking about tonight is Vir Sind Das Volk. Uh, this is a fascinating game uh, put out by uh, Histo Games, and, and this is a game that is designed to kind of take a look at the kind of turbulent period of history from the end of World War II all the way through through the Cold War, um, looking at the history of Germany, back when Germany was still divided into East and West Germany, as it was after the Second World War. Uh, this is a two-player-only game, uh, as you would expect, and the designers are Richard uh, Seville and Pierre Sylvester. Uh, this is a, a, a dual uh, designer game, and it's published by Histo Games, and it was put out in 2014. So uh, this is a game that really kind of caught my attention, Martin, because it was a historically-themed game. And, you know, for me, anything that's going to try to capture a time and place in history always kind of gathers my attention. So what was it about this game that kind of got your attention? Uh, well, I'd agree with you there, Jeff, that um, I, I really enjoy kind of modern historical themes. I find them really fascinating. That's one of the one of the things I've been really getting into more and more in my in my gaming. Where, on the heavier side, at least, I've been getting really interested in games that are trying to kind of simulate or explore a, a historical theme. And some of the Phil Eklund games uh, that I know we both love do a fantastic job of that. So. I was I was really interested when I first heard about this one, and and the other thing uh, that really caught my attention was was the names you mentioned there, the the designers they're associated with it. Um, Pierre Sylvester, I'd um, 
played his uh, King of Siam, which again has a kind of it's it's more of an abstract game than than the one we're talking about today, but it also has that historical link and uh, really interesting designer notes with it, and it's a it's a brilliant game, I think. And um, Richard Civil, I I hadn't played any of his designs before. I recently just since then just played maria um a couple of weeks ago as well but i i heard a lot about them and they sounded like they'd be uh, my kind of thing too so when i saw those names associated with this theme that i found really interesting and then i started to hear about the kind of card driven uh mechanics that it had going on which is also something i i tend to really enjoy then um, it just sounded like a winning combination for me yeah, you know, a lot of people have kind of compared this to Twilight Struggle, um, a lot in the forums, you know, in that it is kind of this historical game set in this period, but it's more kind of compressed or focused, perhaps, um, you know, because you kind of have Twilight Struggle, which is sort of the grand theater of the Cold War, and then you have a game like 1989, which focuses on, you know, this whole region of the world, kind of utilizing the system, and now you have your Sindas Volk, which is really kind of just uh, focusing only on you know Germany and East Germany um, during this time period. So I, I kind of think it's interesting. You have like these three different lenses to look at this time period, and you know out of those three titles, this one to me kind of feels in many ways um, kind of the most abstract, but it feels the most thematic. So th- th- I know this is kind of an odd thing to say, but I'm kind of curious if if you understand what I'm saying or if you would have any um, response to that. That it's abstract, but it feels thematic. Hmm, that's a that's an interesting one. I'm not I'm not quite quite sure what you mean there, but I think what I would say about it compared to Twilight Struggle is that the individual events maybe don't feel quite as thematic to me, and I think that's because they're uh, they're mainly well almost entirely icons depicting what happens with the events rather than the the text you get on uh, Twilight Struggle or, or 1989 cards. I think that means that some of the events in Twilight Struggle are a bit more memorable. Like I could instantly tell you what the effect of certain cards is going to be in the game. Um, I don't quite um, have, get that association with uh, with Vizinda Spoke. And I think that's also probably because the history is a bit more unfamiliar. I don't know so much of the detail of what went on in in Germany compared to the the bigger, broader Cold War events but i think it it does as you say i mean it does it the the overall game does still have a very thematic feel to it um you know this um it's the the asymmetry of what's going on really comes across you know it feels completely different to play right west germany and east germany and i think more so than um than ussr and, and usa in twilight struggle feel i mean they are asymmetric but i think i think this is just a much stronger part of the feel of uh, of this in Das Volk and um, East Germany really feels like it's constantly being pressured. But but the balance for that is that all you have to do as East Germany survive until the end of the game, um, and it, and it is a very different feel to playing as West, where you it can look like you're a lot more comfortable on the on the board and things are going well. But unless you can really focus and push through and find the way that you're gonna nail east germany down then you'll end up losing so i I think that's a really really interesting way that the um the game evokes its theme you know 
Right, right. Yeah, what I was kind of, uh, you basically summed up what I was talking about there. So I think we're actually on the same page. What, what I mean by that is I totally agree with you, which is the uh, cards in Twilight Struggle in 1989, you know, with the illust- with the, the photo, you know, usually photographs and uh, the heavy text. And also the fact that there are many of those uh, events from that, you know, late deck that I, I actually remember, you know, that I kind of went through. Um, but this one with the icons, as you said, feels a little more abstract. But the theme, it really comes through for the reasons that you're mentioning. And to me, it reminds me a little bit, the reason I brought it up to you, this idea of a game being abstract but thematic, it reminds me a little bit of Tigris and Euphrates in this way, in, in that the, the game may feel kind of mechanical, um, but as you play it, the theme really begins to come through. Because as you said, if you play East Germany, you are going to feel, you know, punished and beset upon all the time and, and you're going to feel like you're just trying to hang on by your fingernails and through you know the use of your your internal stasi police force right whereas the west you know you kind of have a, a lot of sort of intrinsic advantages but you actually have your own problems as the west because you have to make sure that you know the standard of living throughout your country rises kind of at the same time uh you know or you might be in trouble yourself meanwhile you're still trying to pressure east germany and so the, the theme actually kind of, I feel, comes through very strongly in this. And, and the reason I wanted to start off with that before we even began talking about the mechanics of the game or the specifics of the game is because most of what I've read, Martin, and, and you can tell me if you think I'm wrong, is there, there seems to be this debate over whether or not people are going to like this game based on how abstract it appears to be or how abstract it feels or, or what have you. And so, you know, for people out there listening, I just want to kind of give them an idea of what the debate is about. And, you know, I think you really nailed it, which is it's basically icon-based events. There is a name to the event. And, you know, sometimes, you know, it, it may even seem like a, a strange name. Like, uh, what's the card, Martin, where it says, like, blue jeans are finally allowed in, in East Germany? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, that that's an event, you know? And you're like, yeah. really? That's an event? Um, <laughs> you know, but... <laughs> But if you if you read the designer notes or if you know anything about that period of German history, that was a big deal. Like yeah. that, that actually was a big deal. That was very that was very important, you know. Um, so all of these cards, they only have kind of like the title on them, but the uh, the historical notes. If you take the time to read them, and I think that that's something I would suggest to people, especially if they're worried about it feeling too abstract. If you read those notes and then you look at the icons on the cards and what's going to transpire, they they like match beautifully. Like they they really do. Like they match up quite well. So. You know, is there anything else before we kind of move on? Because I wanted to tackle that first that you would say about this game as far as whether you would kind of classify it as an abstract or or how would you classify it? Um, how would I? I mean, I don't I don't think it's an abstract at all. I mean, and I, and I think if it if it was an abstract, it would be far too fiddly as an abstract. I think it's it only makes sense for it to have all these little exceptions and and um, fiddly bits to the rules because what they're trying to do is bring across the history, um, almost try and it, it's almost like a, a simulation or model of the right. history where they've, and that's what the designer notes really help with because they explain how they looked at that situation, that period in history, 
what how they identified what they thought the important um strands that were going on were which things that they really needed the game to represent so they decided you know the game has to have some representation of the the stasi the secret police force it has to have some uh, representation of increasing living standards and uh, and unrest leading to protests and you know there are different tracks on the board that model different things like uh, the the strength of the socialist ideology or the um the western currency that needed to be imported into east germany to keep its economy running and you know so they looked at they looked at the history they decided what was important and then they came up with a way to represent that it in the game and i think unless you are going to buy into that and try and understand what they're saying with the game and what those what those mechanics correspond to in real life then it probably will feel abstract and also annoying because <laughs> the, the, those rules are just going to seem like like just unnecessary fiddliness and you think why why did they bother why did they bother with this this is stupid you know and and the the reason is because they're not just trying to make a game. They're trying to make something that, that represents something real in the, you know, the real history. And I think that's, that's one of the things I love about it. But if you don't buy into that, then it could be something that puts you off the game. So do you agree that, you know, reading those designer notes is really helpful uh, before you even begin to play, or would you say play it and then read the designer notes later? I would say read, read the designer notes. like, before before you play yeah i think um i think that's important i think even even your first game and and the first game is really there's a lot going on and you really need to just sacrifice that first game to be about learning the mechanics and seeing what what's going to happen because i know we'll probably go on and talk about the mechanics in more detail but there's um the way the game works is that there are four decades and after each decade there's this quite lengthy kind of 10 step evaluation process where you kind of see what what happened as a result of the decisions you took during that decade and until you've played a full game you just won't have any idea what's going to happen in those end of decade periods you'll do stuff and you think why am i doing this and then it'll get to the end of the decade and everything will collapse and your plans will all be in ruins and you think ah okay i need to think about (laughs) this a bit differently next time so um but I would say, yeah, read read the designer notes either before or or just after the the first time you play because I think they're so important to helping you understand how to learn the game um, because right. you know they're 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 the they're the reason behind the the way the design works. I think they kind of ground you, you know. That I, I I agree with you. I think they kind of give you a little bit of grounding, so that you you understand why some of the things in the game work the way they do. Well, you know, we've we, we've been a little cryptic uh, long enough. So what I'd like to do is is kind of turn it over to you. Now I've played this game probably somewhere between eight and ten times. I love this game, um, and it's one of my new favorites in in the rotation pretty regularly. Um, but what I'd like to do is is turn it over to you and ask if you could just kind of give a brief. <laughs> overview of the basics of the game and the structure and how it flows and then we can you know talk a little bit more specifically about some of the things we love about this title sure yeah i mean it's it's a difficult task to describe the game because there is 
as I said, an awful lot going on. And <laughs> that's why also, I gave it to you, Mark. Yeah, I know, I know, Jeff, I know. Um, and, and also, um, the, the way that ev- everything everything is linked to everything else. And I I tried to um, I put up a file on BGG. I don't know if you've seen it, but it was a kind of a diagram that I did for myself to try and understand the way the mechanics all interlinked. And it ended up just being this crazy thing of arrows everywhere and i'm like okay yeah this game is pretty complicated um but yes so let's let's try and break it down a bit so west germany versus east germany so we've got a map the the board is a big a big map um cities depicted on the map are connected by roads i guess or some kind of infrastructure links um and then a number of tracks as well, which represent different things. I mentioned some of those, some of those before. Um, and then the way the game is is driven is through cards. Um, but the big difference from something like Twilight Struggle is that you don't have a hand of cards for yourself. There's a common display of cards which you take turns to draft from, I guess. Um, and there are four decades of play. Each decade is divided into a half decade, and there will be a new display of cards for each half decade. So basically, you take turns picking a card and doing something with it until all the cards are gone, and then you deal another row of cards and and do the same again. Um, Each time you come to the end of a decade, you're going to go through this big resolution phase where all the decisions you made over the over the decade which have resulted in the the way things are looking on the map and on the various tracks are going to cause this kind of cascade of effects that um possibly might end up in one side or the other losing because the only the only time at which you can lose is during that end of decade phase and there are various different ways that you can lose so um you know there are there there are a number of different things to be worried about as uh, as each oh, yeah. decade comes to an end um and then at the end of the fourth decade if east hasn't lost in any of those ways then east wins just just for surviving um so i mean what's what's going on on the board and what you're doing with the with the cards the the main thing you're going to be doing with a card is building up your infrastructure um and that's represented by factories which you can build in each of the cities and infrastructure connections which you can build between them. And it has this neat thing where each time you connect one factory to another, it boosts the productivity of both of those factories. So they're on these little triangular chits which can rotate to show uh, what what uh, strength they're up to. Um, so that's a big element is this kind of network building economic element where you're trying to build up your economy get your factories up and that's important for a number of different reasons everything's interconnected in this game um the other thing is that the cards have events obviously as um so it has the same deal as as twilight struggle where you can play a card for an event or you can play a card for its for its operations points which is is what you use to do the um, the building up of the infrastructure. the The way the events work is a bit different, though, because you can't, you never trigger your opponent's event. Um, you can only trigger your your own events, but they're all available in in the row. So if I see a really scary event that you have in that row, I can just take it 
and use it for ops points instead. But on the other hand, there might be a really nice event for me that I really want to happen and I don't want you to be able to take away from me. So there's this, that's probably the core tension of the game is what am I going to grab now? Am I going to grab away something that I don't want you to have or am I going to grab something that I really want to do? Um, so you've got that going on and and it's just not it's just not that simple because there are so many different reasons that you might want to grab a different card or avoid a different card um the way i describe the game it's kind of like a, a tug of war but with like five different ropes all tangled up in the center and you don't really know which one you should be pulling on in order to to win so um yeah i mean i guess that's uh that's the, that that's my summary well, that's a nice summary because, uh, you know, uh, it, it's number one, better than I could have done. And number two, it captures kind of the core ideas of the game. And I like your multiple rope tug of war kind of image because you really do kind of have this issue. Like, for example, if I am the East, if I'm if I'm the East German player, then one of my biggest problems is trying to control the flight of my people from East Germany to West Germany. And that's represented by this little kind of uh, uh, flight track that's at the bottom of the board that you're going to assess during those scoring periods, right? And uh, cards that you play sometimes have that little flight icon on them, and that's going to kind of determine the sort of rate of exodus of people from East Germany, uh, you know, leaving. And so I have to manage that, right? I also have the opportunity to, you know, play cards that are these uh, secret police cards, the Stasi cards. And those cards are going to be helpful in sort of um, uh, quelling uh, unrest, okay? I can use them to sort of um, get silence my own people. Um, I, I forget what the designer's note said, Martin, but it said like something ridiculous, like one in 20 people or something in East Germany worked for the Stasi at yeah, one point. Yeah. Um, it was like really terrible ratio. And yeah. You know, everybody was like watching everybody and everyone was suspicious of everybody. And anyway, so I can play those cards, but then that's going to have a negative effect on me. So, you know, I, how do I manage that? So how do I manage the secret police? How do I manage flight? How do I manage my economy? And one of the, the interesting things that can happen is, you know, your factories can become run down through card effects. And what that basically means is those sort of socialized, you know, kind of factories that are not very productive. It's not that they're shut down, but they're not really operating at kind of a, a peak capacity that they normally would. So you can actually end up with factories that just contribute nothing or very little to your overall economy. So I have to kind of watch my, my infrastructure and make sure that I've got some kind of economy going um, because one of the things that's going to happen is I have to be worried about how my population views life in the West. And there's this kind of really interesting kind of comparison thing. Like you have to look at, okay, if Germany's economy is bumping, West Germany's economy is doing fantastic right across the border, and my people are living in squalor, they're not going to be really happy, and that's going to cause unrest. So how do I boost my living standard to kind of protect me from the kind of propaganda effects of, hey, these people are living with color TVs and blue jeans, and we got nothing, right? And so you have to manage that. And then, of course, you have to manage 
manage your your fact that you're relying upon you know currency infusions. You mentioned that before with the Western currency. There's so many different things that you have to kind of keep an eye on. Meanwhile, your opponent is deliberately trying to sow unrest in your country, and you're trying to do the same to them. And so, I, I think that this this nature of this intertwined, interconnected kind of tug of war is a great metaphor for it, because there's so many things you have to keep track of, and you're never, at least in my experience, you're never going to be able to keep track of all of them. And so it, it's almost like where you're, you're putting out fires, you know, it's like, okay, I, th this is a crisis, I got to deal with that. And then uh, in the meantime, if I can have any room to breathe at all, I'm going to try and, and augment this, I'm going to try and bump this up, but then another fire will pop up and you have to deal with that. Um, the prestige track, you know, the prestige is another thing that you have to keep track of because not only does it determine who gets to pick first from that card display you described, but the prestige also has the effect of, um, there's, there's negative effects for East Germany if you let the prestige grow too far uh, in the West's favor. If people are really, really, you know, loving West Germany and, you know, that they kind of have the world's favor, then things are going to be even worse for East Germany. And so, East Germany can kind of get into this death spiral that you have to manage. On the other side, West Germany has its own problems. So West Germany is trying to kind of raise everybody's standard of living, but they're having to deal with the problem of Berlin. How do we, you know, how do we not let Berlin just go? How are we going to support Berlin? And that has a lot to do with uh, this really fascinating system, but very confusing system at first, of these supply zones. So Berlin kind of has to be supplied by other regions in Western Germany. And these regions are represented by the historic regions that were kind of controlled or influenced greatly by the United States and Great Britain. Uh, and what's the other one? France, right? You know, uh, those yeah, are the three, yeah. right? So those regions, as you raise their living standard, you can sort of export your living standard. You can sort of export wealth and product and, and, and things of that nature uh, to Berlin. It's almost as if the airlift is going on during the entire game. But you can't raise Berlin's living standard higher than the living standard of the people who are living in the zones who are supplying Berlin. So, you know, I know that all sounds, you know, that might sound confusing, but it actually does kind of thematically make sense, right? Meanwhile, West Germany's real estate is much larger, much, much larger and harder to kind of um, get everybody moving in the same direction at the same time. Because if you're West Germany and you build up your infrastructure, you build up your living standard too high, too quickly in some regions, but not in others, your own people are going to get upset with you because they're going to want to know why things are so awesome in, in you know, uh, northern West Germany and why the south is being allowed to languish. You know? And so what's up with that? And we're not happy about this. And so that's the no power to no one. Uh, slogan of West German demonstrators as opposed to we are the people of East German demonstrators of uh, Wirsin das Volk. So both countries, you know, regardless of which you play, really have a lot of kind of things that they have to keep track of. And if you're the West Germans, you have one other crucial one. Um, I don't, I think it's crucial. I'll be curious to, to hear what you have to say, Martin. And that is that socialism track. Because one of the things that the East Germans have are they, they kind of have these little cubes that represent um, socialists and the, the power of socialism and the ideology of socialism. And they're going to be used by East Germany 
to kind of quell unrest and settle things down as, you know, East Germany is trying to sell the socialist model, the socialist ideal to its own population and to the world. And if the East German player can manage to kind of get all of those markers representing socialism onto the board, they win. And so as West Germany, I can't let I can't let that happen. I have to kind of stall that. I have to I have to take that away from them, which as you said, often will lead me to taking cards that are kind of suboptimal for me in order to keep East Germany from gaining this powerful benefit and vice versa. And one of the things that I found interesting about the design Martin is that of course, if the card is really good for East Germany, it's going to be next to worthless to me for build points. And vice versa. So, like, if I take this card that's going to be great for East Germany, and I say, all right, I'm going to take it from the display so that you can't use it. I'm going to use it for build points. Well, I might have gotten one or two build points on that. And so, not really useful. In addition, um, you know, if you're using a card that's kind of keyed for another country, there's actually a penalty involved in, in, in using that as well. So, all of these things make for really tense decisions in this game. Um, so... We talked a little bit about the asymmetry. You, you brought it up and mentioned it. And, and I think people, based on your description and mine, hopefully now have an idea of how differently these two sides play. I've kind of always felt that the East German side was a little bit easier to manage than West Germany, surprisingly enough. Have you found that to be true, or do you think that that's, uh, that's bunk? I think I definitely found that for the first few games. Uh, I think we had something like five East victories in a row before I finally managed to win with West. And it's certainly been a common observation on, on BGG that people are finding West tough uh, to start with. And, you know, there was one post saying, you know, the game is clearly unbalanced and broken and all of this kind of stuff. And I think that's nonsense because what's happened as I've carried on playing it more is that I've learned how to play better as West. And it was, as I was saying before, that because East can win by just surviving till the end of the game, right. you, need, you need to play a good game as West. You need to choose something to focus on. You need to know which of the ways you're going to choose is going to be the one that you're going to try and beat East with. Are you going to beat them by dismantling their economy? Are you going to beat them by creating too much unrest and mass protests? Are you going to try and beat them by... Uh, removing all the socialists from the board, you know there are there are different there are different approaches, and based on which approach you take, you're going to be prioritizing different cards from that row. Like they're going to be different ones that you're going to want to grab straight out of there as soon as you see them, and you need to have got to that level of being able to choose that approach and know how to execute it in order to really be able to play a good game and win as West, whereas. For East, you can be a bit more responsive. You can do the firefighting that you were talking about because all you need to do is survive. And if, if West isn't putting enough pressure on, you'll be able to soak it up. So I had, yeah, like I said, five games, I think, where East won when I first played. I've now played about a dozen times. And I think since those five games, I think it's probably 4-3 to West in the games I've played since then. You know, it's it, it's become much more it's become much more balanced and I, you know, I respect the, the design team. I'm, I know they will have done tons of playtesting and, and they have said, you know, 
in our playtest. It, it was balanced, and that's what I'm seeing now, and that's what I'm hearing from other people who've had the chance already to play it 10-plus times. But I think certainly in the first few games, it is going to appear that East has an easier ride. And that's why I've been, when I've been teaching new people, I've generally given them East to play with. Because although it it seems like East has more things to worry about, um, I do think it is still easier because, because of those reasons I just said, you know, you can, you can soak things up rather than having to be the one who's, who's driving the game. I think what you, what you have to do is the East is much more direct I think it's much easier to wrap your mind around than it is with the West. I think that the the West trying to figure out, as you said, how to apply pressure and which pressure point is going to give you the best kind of bang for your buck is not always readily apparent. Whereas, you know, when you say to somebody, all that you have to do is hang in there, just hang in there, <laughs> then I, I think everybody, as you said, you could wrap your mind around that. You, you can understand. All right, so as long as I, I don't, I don't have to be doing well at all like my my country can be a mess with you know three protest markers and just almost no infrastructure and factories that are all run down but hey as long as i survive i win and i think that you're right i think every time that i've taught it i've also you know kind of given the east to uh the starting player for exactly that reason so as you said, I believe, as you do, that this game is is definitely balanced, but it is so asymmetrical, and it's not always obvious what is the best thing for you to do. It definitely takes some time in order to play it, uh, in order to learn you know, the game and play it well. And then you know, once you've kind of gotten used to a side, you can flip-flop and play the uh, opposite side, and you, you almost get like a totally different experience and perspective from it. So... Um, since you're talking about the West, what do you think are kind of the most crucial ways that the West can pressure the East? Because, you know, I, I've kind of got my own kind of preferred strategies, and I'm curious what yours are. Um, and, and I realize that there's a there's a multitude of them, but do you find some that are, are generally very effective? I think one is to really focus on building up your living standard in those border regions um you need to get some you need to get some living standard into berlin definitely if you don't if you don't get living standard into berlin you can die so quickly because berlin actually as well as having to have living standard imported from those supply zones you were talking about it also exports its protests back to the supply region so if you get mm-hmm. protests in berlin they they count double and it can just all go bad very quickly you only have to have four mass protests on the board at the end of a decade and and, and you lose and and west germany doesn't have as many ways of getting rid of those as as east does so i think um building up living standard in berlin and uh, along the border just really concentrating on building your economy and then building up those living standards that can make it very hard for east because they suddenly got piles of unrest coming across the border at them at the end of every decade um so that's that's certainly one approach Another one I've had some success with was just really focusing on denying those socialist cards to the East early on in the game. Because if you look at the distribution of cards, most of the ones that that push the socialist track in in the East direction are um, in the first couple of decades. And if you if you manage to deny East getting a lot of those, and then suddenly in decade three, and particularly decade four, there's a ton of 
cards that will move it back in in west's direction and you can you can really make things quite scary for east that way and then i guess the third one is is all to do with the um the western currency track and um and also with the economy where where east has this nasty thing where in order to support any living standard at all it needs to be able to pay for it and one way it can do that is with its own factories as long as they're as good as the worst west one in in any of the western regions so if you really focus on getting that even development across the west so you've got a factory of a value at least two in every region pretty quickly and then keep you know push that up to three um and also focus on that the western currency track then you can make it virtually impossible for east to afford to have any living standard and that's where it really can get into this kind of death spiral you were you were talking about where during the end of decade you can each stage will sort of remove more and more of uh, of east's infrastructure and um, the the lack of western currency is what will cause the factories to go run down and once the factories are run down you can never get rid of them you can never build them back up again so it's kind of a permanent blight on the eastern infrastructure that can never be healed so you get these kind of horrible spirals and 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 it can just get really bad really quickly so i guess i'd say those you know those three those each of those approaches kind of corresponds to one of the winning conditions i guess so those are those are some things i've tried and, and had some success with yeah, I would have to agree. The Western currency is probably my favorite. Um, you know, I, I try to deny as much Western currency as I possibly can because that really makes life uh, for the East player quite miserable. Um, and, you know, late in the game, uh, in the third and fourth decade, there's more cards um, that, that really will move that Western currency. And so... If I can kind of, uh, you know, keep pushing that to my side of the track, that's going to really put the screws to the East player and make it difficult for them not to collapse. So uh, I agree with all three of these kind of general overarching strategies that you've outlined. Um, the Western currency one is, is is one that I've kind of pursued the most. And, um, you know, I've, I've tried to deny the socialists as well. Um, the living standard is is kind of, I think, the, the most direct, I would say, and easiest to kind of conceptualize, which is, things are awesome over here you should come you know and 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 that kind of temptation you know uh, um that the west was kind of offering to the east as as the east kind of looks at the disparity the wide disparity historically between what they had to deal with and what the west was dealing with is a really easy way to apply a lot of pressure but the cards themselves martin i i I really kind of find fascinating because you know these cards will allow you to put unrest you know to cause unrest to sow dissension right and the way the game works is once you've got uh four right Four unrest cubes in a region that's going to spark a mass protest. And so, you know, you you have to kind of constantly keep an eye on the the happiness of your population and, you know, which regions are bound to be the the next ones to kind of flame up. And then what are we going to do, you know, in order to kind of try and stop that? Um, So all of these things, these these general kind of strategies, I think, are um, really kind of crucial because you never know exactly how it's going to pan out. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact of something that you mentioned, which is 
you know, you don't have like separate hands, you know, there's not separate decks. It's all just one flop, one display. And the only exception to that is there's going to be one card per decade that only the East player can use and activate. And if you don't use it, uh, by the time that that period is over, you lose that card. And so these are like really powerful cards that are going to be generally very beneficial to the East player, but they come at a cost. And one of the things that I like, Martin, about the game is those cards, because they're kind of what almost gives you that sort of what-if kind of scenarios. Like, is there a better path that East Germany could have gone down rather than cracking down, You know, rather than bringing in the Soviet tanks, right? Rather than building the Berlin Wall. You actually have the opportunity to not build the wall if you don't want to. Now, you're going to have to deal with people fleeing, but you know, you're not going to deal with the loss, the constant loss of prestige by building this, this hateful wall that you know, everybody despises. So you know, those cards, I think, are actually really not only thematic, but they often open up that kind of possibility for me to play with the history a little bit. Have you found that as well? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's a that's a great observation. Um, I've actually found more often than not the East has not built the wall, which is kind of interesting. But then I think probably it it should be thinking about it a bit more. I think there are kind of different routes you can go down, as you as you say. Like if you decide you are going to have a bunch of secret police, which has its benefits, but it also has the big disadvantages of causing more flight and if you're going to have a big secret police force it can really be a good idea to get that wall built because once you've done that you don't have to worry about flight anymore you will lose prestige but you won't have to worry about the flight dismantling your infrastructure every decade so you can definitely choose to play a more historically accurate game where you build the wall and you have the secret police force and all the rest of it but you can also you know maybe take a more positive um approach and and build up your socialist ideology you know persuade the people um that that they you know that they are that they agree with what what's happening in east germany and 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 reducing these uh, reducing your unrest and, and protest that way by by having this strong ideology and not building the wall and not having the police and trying to, you know, maybe not having as high a living standard as West Germany, but having a, a fair living standard a- across the whole country so people aren't getting upset about the, you know, one area of East Germany doing better than another. And, and, and you know, that's, that's really interesting that the game allows such a broad variety of approaches, I think, for especially for East Germany. Um, maybe not quite such a, a variety of, uh, of ways to play the game as, as West, although we did talk about a few different approaches as, as West just now as well. Um, and then the other thing, as well as those, um, those special cards you were just talking about, there are two cards each that you have secret in your, in your hand. So you're looking at a display of seven cards, which is public, and you only have two cards each in, in, in your hand. It might seem quite insignificant but actually i feel like those can play a huge role and your one thing that they they do is allow you to mess with the with the the timing the tempo of the game a bit because uh 
if you don't want the decade to end just yet, which will happen when the public card rows run out, then you can play a card from your hand instead of taking one from the, the row. So you can kind of change the tempo a bit that way. But also you can hold back you can hold back cards, even ones that you got dealt right in the very first decade. You're allowed to hold that over to a subsequent decade if you want to. And you can save something really that's going to be really unexpected when it finally does turn up um, and and cause some nasty shocks. Like just before just before a decade's ending, suddenly something comes out of your hand that the um, the other player had no idea was was going to be there. So that's quite neat. I think just that two cards in hand does add a necessary bit of uncertainty to to what's going to happen. Um, it's not just completely determined by the, the information that's on display for both players. Yeah, thanks for reminding me of that, because that is definitely something that can have a very large effect on the game, and I've seen that uh, just as you have. Um, there is a considerable uh, amount of importance in that tempo that you're talking about. And in, in playing the card from your hand and extending a round, uh, you really can uh, either buy yourself time to try to you know deal with a, maybe an unrest problem that you know is going to be difficult and spark a mass protest or you know to make that one last crucial move that you need and it also kind of keeps it from being a perfect information game as you said there's going to be just a little bit of randomization you've got four cards in each of these decks that you are not guaranteed are going to come out because I don't have to play them. As you said, I can hoard them. And oftentimes I've been dealt a hand of cards that are worthless to me, but they were rather important cards for you. And so by me not using them or hanging on to them or denying them, uh, you know, for you, it actually works out to be a, you know, a benefit for me. So uh, I agree. That's a, that's an often overlooked part of the design. And so I'm glad you highlighted that. So what we have here is we have this really interesting asymmetrical game where the two sides feel very different, very kind of rich in theme, a little bit fiddly, as we both have admitted, um, you know, because your infrastructure and your, your industry is constantly going to build up and it's going to be torn down and it's going to build up and it's going to be torn down. Um, you know, living standard is, is rarely removed. It can be removed, but those are kind of more permanent effects generally. Um, you know, but but you have these all of these kind of moving parts going on. But one of the things that I find fascinating is that this game gives me a lot of that kind of same feel that I get from Twilight Struggle, that tug of war that you mentioned. But you know, this game plays in in a much much shorter time frame. Um, how much do you think uh, that has a, a bearing on this game? Because somebody had asked me uh, in a forum, and, and it, I think you were participating in it as well you know, over, over, well, which is better, Twilight Struggle or this? And I think I responded, you know, I, 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 th I still think I, I like Twilight Struggle better, but I've gotten this game to the table, what did I say, like about 10 times since I've gotten it. And I haven't played Twilight Struggle this year. And it's because it's just such a beast of a game. As much as I love it, it's difficult to find the time to get it to the table. Do you find this to be true as well? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think I, I was in that discussion. And, you know, just looking at my logs plays, you know, I've played Wizard Dust Vault 12 times, and I've only had it since November last year. So that's, what, six months. Um, Twilight Struggle, I've been playing for five years, and I've got 
12 plays logged. I mean, I played it some online as well, so I have played quite a bit more than just those 12 plays would indicate. But in terms of face-to-face, getting it on the table, it it needs dedication. You know, you need to set aside a whole evening or set something up at a weekend or, or whatever because, you know, Twilight Struggle, it might be over in a couple of hours, but if it goes the full... 10 rounds of uh, to the final scoring it could you know it could take you for five hours um whereas in desk folk is, is never going to be longer than two hours um right, right. W- w- once you've got over the um the initial learning i mean maybe your first couple of games will be a, a little longer but it's basically it's basically going to be half an hour per decade so and it will usually end on decade three or four i guess once once people know what they're doing i certainly had some incredibly quick games where it was all over at the end of the first the first decade but i would say typically it's probably going to go to two three or four decades so you're talking an hour and a half two hours which is very manageable you know that's that's never going to be a problem to to get a game of that complete and and then do something else in an evening you know or even play it back to back which i which i've done a, a couple of times too so yeah i mean i think it's it's considerably easier to get it played. Well, you know, one of the things I want to circle back to Martin is the comment that you made a little while ago, you know, you, you talked about trying to kind of determine how much of this game is a game and how much of it is kind of simulation. And, you know, this, this has been a, a recent discussion that's been going on in the board game community. I mean, I think about Phil Eklund's games that you mentioned. Uh, I think about Twilight Struggle, which in, in many ways I feel is a simulation. Um, you, you know, Virsindas Volk, Maria, um, which I, I'm, I'm actually going to be curious to ask you in a minute what you thought of that. Um, you know, it, th- this kind of move towards these uh, games that model uh, these particular times and places, uh, you know, is this... Is this what makes these games so compelling to you? Because some people would say, well, if it's a simulation, it's more for educational kind of value and not so much for enjoyment. You know, it's it's to learn from, not to just sit and play the same way you would like Settlers of Catan. And there seems to be this line that people are starting to draw. I'm not saying I agree with it, but there seems to be this line that people are drawing that, well, that's not a game, that's a simulation. I, I keep hearing that phrase popping up over and over. Where do you stand on this whole thing? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I have seen that kind of discussion too. And to me, it is a huge part of the appeal of this game and the, and some of the other ones we, we talked about is that they are doing, you know, they are ta- they are depicting something real. They're trying to say something. They're not, it's not just mechanics, you know, it's not just, it, it's not just mechanics and uh, gameplay. There's, there's, a, there's some real story behind it too um but i i mean i still think i still think that this plays fantastically as a game you know but i don't think that you're going to get the most out of it if you don't read those designer notes and maybe read some history maybe you know and really buy into the theme if you're someone who doesn't care about theme in your games who plays games for the mechanics for the gameplay primarily um theme doesn't really bother you then i don't think this is going to be the game for you because as we were saying earlier i think some of it is just going to appear unnecessary you're going to say well why why are these special rules for berlin you know why are there special rules for hamburg why are there special rules for this weird 
nuclear factory in East Germany. You know, this we don't. You know, th- th- this doesn't make the game any better. This is pointless. Let's just get rid of it. And I have seen those arguments being made. And so, I mean, I think that's. I think that's fair. You know, I think if you don't, if you're not interested in theme, if you're not interested in the history, then the game will appeal to you less, and that that's fine. But definitely, to me, it's what. I love about it and it's the kind of game that that I look out for are the ones that 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 do this kind of thing. So yeah, I think it's um I think it's a different approach and 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 I wouldn't say it goes, you know, you're talking about uh educational versus you know, educational versus fun almost. I I I don't think that needs to be totally in opposition, you know. I think you can you can learn something from a game and that can be part of the fun um as well so yeah i mean it's 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 definitely it's definitely something that i look for yeah it's a trend that seems to be growing as far as i can see and it's a welcome trend you know because it is something that um i almost feel like i'm participating more fully in a game like this than in other games And, and let me explain what i mean by that this game is uh, a wonderful design. It's very well thought out, incredibly well play tested, as far as I can tell. I agree with you 100% on that. And yet I feel like the designers are almost challenging me to participate. Like I have to participate through doing a little bit of reading, you know, through looking at a, maybe a period of history or a time when, you know, that I might not have a ton of knowledge about. And that's going to allow me to kind of like I don't know it's not like I'm designing it with them but it allows me to kind of feel like I'm part of that conversation now whereas I feel if you if you resist that if you say well I don't really care about that or you know that that's not something I'm interested in you're kind of like you're 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 almost like you're going to the same party but you're in a different room you know I, I, I'm at the party, I'm at the house, but everyone's hanging out in the kitchen and I'm sitting by myself in the living room, you know? And I kind of like this idea that's, that designs, some of these designs that have been coming out are challenging me to learn something, like to, to, to like understand it. To, I have to bring something to the table. Does any of that making any sense? Because I, I'm, I'm kind of stumbling a bit with this idea. Yeah, no, that, that totally makes sense to me. I think... Um... I think that's I think that's really interesting and um and you know this game kind of inspired me to I, I knew some some of the history but it's kind of inspired me to um look for something else, you know, look for something to read on the the whole era as well. And the same happens with a lot of the uh the Eckland games as well. You know, there's there's just so much history in there and it, it just make it makes you want to it makes you want to learn more about it um so yeah i mean i i i i agree with you this is a really welcome trend for me uh in gaming and also that these themes these real historical simulation type themes are coming in that aren't purely war games because i guess that was where that approach has always been there in, in in war games in terms of really simulating and modeling a particular conflict and i think it's really interesting that that's kind of opening out into broader historical economic political themes now it's not just about the 
mechanics of of war you know and the 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 logistics of a of a battlefield um i i i'm really enjoying this this trend and i'm really interested to see where it keeps going yeah you know i'm i'm trying to think um one of the first times that i noticed this kind of trend because i i hadn't thought of what you said there that yes this has always kind of been present that kind of care, that kind of attention to detail in war games, I, I totally, uh, I totally agree with you. Um, but I'm thinking about games like uh, an early game for me that kind of took a little bit of this feel was uh, actually an Andrew Parks design. I, I totally didn't know Andrew uh, uh, designed this game. Ideology: The War of Ideas. You know, where you're, you're you're kind of taking a look at this this game where you're kind of modeling the kind of cold war sort of you know notion of 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 competing ideologies but you're doing it in a in a kind of a uh, abstracted kind of way and this kind of i think is one of the games that i think of as kind of a precursor of this kind of movement of these games that we're seeing that are kind of trying to as you said make it more than just the application of force you know it's not just the armies that were uh crucial to this time period but it was also you know the economics the politics the social kind of things that were happening at that time uh, you know advances in science and all of these different things all kind of work together and that's why i think like these games are are becoming more interesting to a wider audience and yet I, I think you're right. I think they owe a debt to the wargaming kind of community because that's really where I think a lot of that started. I agree with you. And it's almost like, you know, people have always said that like wargaming is like a, a, a small niche within the niche hobby of board gaming. And yet this is a way that I see that that, that smaller community, if it is indeed smaller, I don't know if it is, but it, I think traditionally people think it's smaller, is actually influencing the larger community outside of it, because it's not just, you know, Virsindas Volk we're talking about. We've also got the whole coin series, you know, Volko Runke series and other designers who have followed with that system, you know, modeling, again, more modern kind of times and conflicts and places using, you know, an interesting kind of set of mechanics and, and uh, design that is allowing people to kind of play with these ideas. So um, can you think of any other games that, that maybe were kind of precursors to this kind of movement that we're seeing? I don't, I don't know. I mean, I guess probably, probably Twilight Struggle was one of the, the earliest ones that, that I played that, that had that for me, you know, the, the, the whole, you know, the fact that it's not about military conflict, it's about, um, it's about spreading ideas around the world and, and political control and, and, and that kind of thing. So I guess that was probably one of the, um, you know, one of the precursors for, for me, but, um, I, I mean, I think you're right that, um, with the, the coin series as well, G GMT has been a really key, uh, publisher for this, type of game and they're, they're, I haven't actually played any of the, the coin games yet I'd really like to um, but also they um, I recently played a few games of uh, Navajo Wars um, so oh, they're yeah. a, a solo game but again doing this fascinating thing of you know just an immersive experience that really gets across this historical period a lot, a lot going on you know an incredibly complex game but Again, it has this sense that a lot of care has been put into tying all of those mechanics into some kind of model of, of what was really 
important about the about the situation that it's um, it's trying to depict. Depict. So, yeah, I mean, I I, I think um, I think it's great. Yeah, you know, Navajo Wars is another one that, uh, uh, thankfully, uh, another listener has reached out and said, you know, he would like to, you know, do a, an episode about that, and and I'm all for that because that's a another fascinating, as you said, kind of look that really fits into this whole genre that we're discussing, um, and and it and it is like a again. Navajo Wars required me to do some things. You know, I had to bring something to the table with that. I had to kind of do a little bit of reading to really understand why things worked the way they worked in that game. And so, you know, this is something that I've really grown to appreciate. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, yeah, and I, I'm, I guess I'm finding with the games I play, the way my, my taste has developed, I'm really kind of going two ways. And one is I'm a huge fan of quite light, uh, card games and simpler games that you can learn in five minutes that you can you can have a great time with. On the other hand, where I'm finding my taste in heavy games is going is towards these ones that are historical that that have this simulation aspect that require you to bring something into it that require you to buy into the whole theme. And what I'm not interested in really is heavy games that aren't doing any of that that are just mechanics for the sake of mechanics that are just um you know they might they might feel quite fiddly there might be a lot going on in the rules but i don't really know what for i don't really understand why 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 i should care about that those that fiddliness and those rules and i think the games we've been talking about today are the ones that i'm gravitating towards because i can see why they have to be the way they are why they have to be complex why they have to be fiddly it's because they want to really make that model to, to, to simulate that history. Well, you know, thanks for, uh, you know, sharing your thoughts about that topic, Martin, because that's something that, you know, I've been thinking a lot about. And I, I really do kind of like the challenge that some of the des that, that these designers are putting out. Um, that, that I kind of feel like I am, you know, much more involved in the game. And so, uh, you know, as you said, you kind of like gravitate towards the lighter card games or these kind of heavier, more immersive experiences. And, you know, I'm gravitating more and more towards, you know, games that either are these immersive experiences, just like you, or, you know, some of the kind of social games. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about games like Mysterium and things like that that I'm really enjoying right now. And, and you know, games that I can play with a large group of people and, and have a great time. Um, you know, Euro games still have a, a near and dear place in my heart, but more and more I'm, I'm seeking that little extra something, you know, and that little extra something sometimes in Euro games, Martin, is like, oh, you know, that that's a unique twist on something that I haven't seen before. You know, for example, um, I just uh, reviewed the game Praetor. And, you know, that had this really interesting little twist of, you know, the dice representing your workers as they gain experience and then they have to retire and you still have to pay their pension. It's like really interesting little twist. But, you know, we're, we're still talking about a, a genre that is still, um, you know, worker placement or resource gathering and conversion or set collection or root building or pick up and deliver like there's these there's these core mechanics these core ideas that have been used in game design for like what 15 20 years now and it seems like one of the new things is okay we're going to take some of those mechanisms we're going to apply them 
in a sort of different kind of historical sort of setting, you know, uh, with a nod to someone like Martin Wallace, you know, with brass. And what we're going to do is we're going to kind of challenge you to try to, you know, come with us to this particular time or this era or, or this place. And, you know, if you bring something to the table, as we've been talking about, if you put that little bit of extra time in, the game really opens up and kind of unfolds for you. And so I'm glad that, that we're kind of thinking on the same page like that. Um, you know, not, not to say that I, I wouldn't appreciate a devil's advocate, but but I, I do think that this is a, a trend that I'm spotting that I'm really inspired by more than anything else. Um, so we've talked a good amount about this game mechanically. We've talked about it thematically right from the get-go. Um, is there anything else that, you know, you really wanted to kind of share about why this game seems so special to you? Um, I mean, I think we've covered a lot of the the ground, really. I think it it is the combination of those two things. I wouldn't love it as much if it, I mean, certainly we've been saying all the way through that the um, the theme and that simulation element and that modeling is, is really important to why we both love the game. But I also wouldn't love it if it didn't work really, really well mechanically as well and, and have that amazing tension, which I think is where it does compare really well with Twilight Struggle as well. Just that, that sort of dread of looking at the, the cards, <laughs> looking at the situation on the board and thinking, oh man, how am I going to get out of this? You know, right. and, um, and so I think it, I think it does combine those, those things really well. You know, it is, it, it, it is both simulation and game. It doesn't have to choose to be one or the other. So I think that's, uh, that's probably what I'd say about it. And, and, and that it's a game that really, just comes into its own if you can get one other person to commit to playing a bunch of games in fairly quick succession. You know, that was where my, my first um, six or seven games uh, with my friend Joe, and they were over a pretty close period. And so we could both learn the game together and, and see it, you know, just, just really get into it and, um, and try different things and see the huge variety of things that can happen in the game. You know, I've seen, I've seen games that have ended with um, the last game I played ended with um, one province, I think Mecklenburg in, in East Germany ended the game with five mass protests just in that one province. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, just, you know, it's, it's really interesting to me that the, the system allows for so much flexibility. And like we talked about earlier, the, the alternative history kind of uh, aspect to it and, and just how, um, how varied it can be, which was my worry. I think when, when I first looked at the game and saw that all the events were icons, you know, and that all there was so much public information, very little hidden information. I kind of worried that it was going to fall into that thing where it kind of plays out very similarly each time, you know, there's a certain approach that West should always take and that he should always take. And that just doesn't seem to have, happened it does seem that the the way in which those cards come out both the secret ones in your hand but also the the public display the order which they come out just really can twist the game in in different directions and and that's been really cool to see as well yeah i would agree there there's a huge amount of variety in that little box and uh you know it's a game that i continue to find enjoyment in i continue to find it fascinating and there are so many 
wonderful stories and so many tragic stories and so many uh, amazing and important things that have happened all around the world. You know, I think it's just an exciting time for you know, uh, these designers and others, you know, I I hope that this, if this game continues to kind of build in its momentum, it's already had, I think, a decent amount of success. If it it continues to kind of build in in momentum, and hopefully this show might actually prod some people in that direction as well, I think it's going to uh, open up a, a whole slew of other opportunities for these designers and perhaps other designers in the same way the coin series has, you know, to look at other times, look at other moments moments and and periods of history and try to use this kind of system to sort of, you know, try to model that or, or show what it looks like. Because, you know, at its heart, as you discussed, mechanically, the game is extremely sound. And so here, when we're looking at this game, we're looking at, all right, well, these little counters are supposed to represent factories in East Germany and West Germany. And just kind of the general overall industrial growth of these two countries. Well, those little triangular counters could represent a multitude of other things. It doesn't have to be this notion of only industry. And so I think there's actually some really, um, uh, there's some big opportunities in the future um, to, to use this kind of idea that has been developed by this team of, you know, uh, the, the card play combines with the board and the things that are going on there. And I think some other really interesting periods of history could uh, be examined as well. So, you know, uh, here's hoping, you know. Um, but I, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us about this game because I've been itching uh, to kind of try to spread the word about this. It's a game I feel kind of passionate about. And uh, that's always a good sign for me personally. You know, when I feel this strongly about a game, uh, you know, maybe I'm not going to be as unbiased as as people might like uh, because I'm such a big fan of it. But at the same time, I want to kind of have the opportunity to talk to people about it. And I know that you're a huge fan of it as well. And so having the chance to talk with you when you've had even more experience than I have uh, has been a, a great pleasure. So thank you very much. Oh, no problem, Jeff. It was, uh, it was my pleasure too. Now it's time for a new game review. Join us for a quick look here on The Long View. So the first game that we want to review today is a brand new title from a game company called Cephalofair Games. This is called Forge War. This is a game designed by Isaac Childress uh, with art by Josh McDowell and Jeff Ward. Uh, this is a game that is for one to four players, and the playing time is a very vast range of 60 to 180 minutes there. Uh, and that's because of the multiple kind of ways that you can play this game. So, uh, Forge War. Uh, this is a game in which you are attempting to uh, sort of uh, gather resources that you need from mines, which are going to produce different kinds of things like, say, copper or iron, perhaps. Uh, you might also be able to mine some gemstones. Uh, you might be able to mine rare metal, metals like mithril and, and all these kinds of things. And you're going to take those uh, supplies and you're going to use them to make weapons. Uh, the, there's just this huge variety. There's like spears and axes and knives and bows and hammers and uh, just about anything that you can possibly imagine. You're going to kind of fill a recipe to make a weapon. 
you're then going to give that weapon to a hero. Uh, everybody starts with a few heroes, uh, kind of like level one, real basic kind of guys. And um, what you're going to be trying to do is equip your heroes and then send them on adventures. And these adventures are going to take time. Um, and so you're going to send, you know, perhaps one adventurer out uh, to kind of start dealing with, uh, you know, trouble on the docks. Or uh, it could be something simple like a tavern brawl. Or it could be something like, you know, raiding the bandit camp. Or it could be a really exotic, you know, a, a journey into a dungeon or, or you know, a, a distant fortress. Or uh, trying to infiltrate like a cult or something. There's all these really cool adventures. And... And uh, the adventures, uh, when you go on an adventure, you're going to place like a tracking cube on it. And the adventures are going to be a varying length. So as game turns progress, you're going to make progress on this adventure. You can also send in reinforcements. You can send in more adventurers to go and help people um, equipped with bigger and better weapons that are going to help them. Because as you progress through adventures, uh, there's going to be kind of like a strength requirement that's needed. And if you meet that strength requirement, you're going to either complete the adventure outright and gain a reward and that reward could be you know something like money or, or many other kinds of things or uh, you're going to progress to like the next level of the adventure which is going to have a different kind of a strength requirement so you might be able to send out a hero on an adventure uh, equipped with a very basic bronze sword or something right um, and he's going to go out there and, and try to begin the adventure but later you're going to send him some reinforcements because the strength requirement for the adventure is going to increase as you go and if you kind of can't meet that threshold then you kind of fail but you get like a consolation prize and, and the consolation prize is the reward listed at the end of the previous kind of row because you have to imagine these cards have rows on them where this little progress cube is going to be moving and so therefore um, you're going to be trying to complete the adventure if you can totally complete it the reward of course is much better than if you only complete a part of the adventure right and uh, as a, another kind of a benefit of this, when you complete an adventure, your characters, your heroes are going to level up and they're going to become even stronger. And so they're going to be able to uh, wield even bigger and more impressive weapons and, you know, use different kinds of uh, weapons so that they can go on even more adventures. And so the game kind of ramps up and builds up as you complete this sort of two-level recipe filling. Um, I know that's not a very flattering term, but it's, it's one that I think that really is, is apropos. I've often called Lords of Waterdeep a recipe filling game. You know, you get the right combination of heroes and you throw them in an adventure and you get the points for it and that's it. This game kind of takes it to another kind of a level and that's because it's not just a matter of gathering your heroes you also have to equip them. So equipping them is sort of the first part of the recipe building because, for example, to make a certain weapon, you might need two copper and two iron. Or you might need two iron and a green gemstone or what, what have you. And so what's going to happen is you're going to fulfill that kind of recipe in order to make that weapon. Once you've made that weapon, you kind of master that weapon, then you're going to be able to equip your heroes with that weapon. And so... That's the first part. The second part is kind of the recipe filling of the adventures. 
because the adventures themselves sometimes require uh, heroes with specific types of weapons. So in other words, you're going to need a spear if you're going to go off fighting, you know, the giant spiders. You know, you need something that's a, a weapon that's going to have reach or something like that, right? And so sometimes you can clearly see a, a kind of a thematic connection as to why you need this particular type of weapon. And other times it's just kind of there, you know, okay, well, you need a mace if you're going to go on this adventure. You got to have someone who can wield a mace. And so the first thing you have to do is understand how to make the weapon. That's kind of like claiming like the blueprint or the design for it, if you want to think of it that way. And then the second thing is making the weapon. And then the third thing is giving it to an adventure and sending them on the quest. Uh, or the adventure. And then the last part is making sure that you have enough heroes with enough equipment to totally complete the quest, or at least complete enough of the quest that's going to be worth your while. If you complete the quest, and of course you level up, there's going to be lots of other opportunities to do things in the game. For example, there's like a whole market section of the board. Um, you can go and you can trade resources. You can buy cards that are going to give you kind of um, a powerful kind of benefits or abilities as you go, something that might improve your uh, trading rate or something that might improve uh, the return that you get when you do trade uh, resources, you know, might increase the money that you get or something of that nature. Um, there's also kind of like specialty kind of weapons, like really bizarre, like spiked shields and cool kinds of different uh, weapons that you can procure. So there's all of these kinds of elements to this game, and it kind of really feels like a, a kicked up Lords of Waterdeep in that, you know, there's just different, there's more layers that kind of make you feel connected to the theme a little bit more. And so it's not just a matter of, well, I'm going to go to this building where I'm going to get two fighters and a thief, and then I'm going to take those two fighters and a thief and add them to the three fighters and the cleric I already had. Now I can fulfill this quest. Bam. There, give me 25 points. This one, you kind of feel like you've been through more of the process. You know, it's like first you had to craft the, the special mace, and then you had to give it to a hero who is at least level two. He has to be strong enough and experienced enough to use it well. And then, you know, you choose a quest for him and you send him off and you hope that, you know, it's going to go well because he's not going to come home for a while, you know, which is kind of neat, too. Uh, in Lords of Waterdeep, you kind of like send out your, your crew of adventurers and then they're just kind of gone. Like, OK, they went out, they did their thing. You got points or prestige for, uh, you know, protecting the city or, you know, by sending out adventurers to go and deal with these problems. But um, you don't really kind of get the narrative there. Whereas in this game, there's kind of this progression that you have to go through as your heroes kind of go through these different quests. And so that's really kind of cool. Anytime you see them grow, it's really cool. Um, so the, the final kind of wonderful thematic piece to the puzzle is the fact that like when your heroes achieve level four, then you get to choose like a special ability that only they will have. And so they can have an, an extra kind of little customization to them. So that really kind of gives them a little bit of a life of their own. You know, maybe they've got a silver tongue. So, you know, when they go to negotiate and, and try to get a job, you know, meaning going on an adventure, you don't have to pay. You know, you just kind of get to take the adventure. Normally, you know, you might have to kind of pay almost like a finder's fee, you know, to hear about the job that's out there. And, you know, you had to kind of grease somebody's palms for them to tell you about these unique opportunities. Well, you know, this silver tongued little devil here, he can just find out all about this stuff. And so, 
you know, therefore, uh, you don't have to. Or another guy might have kind of like a barbarian rage kind of an ability, you know, where he's going to be able to use a weapon perhaps that is of a level higher than he is or something of that nature. So there's all these nice little tweaks and customizations that you can add to your characters as they achieve higher and higher levels. In addition, uh, another really interesting thematic kind of piece to the game is the whole mining section of the game, where there's a, a, a section on the main board that is kind of set up with these um, hex tiles, um, but the tiles are kind of arranged in rows, so like there's, there's different kind of orientations to them, and you set them up in a pattern according to the number of players, kind of make the space very competitive. And you have these kind of overseers, and then you have miners. And so in the first kind of phase of every round, you're going to move your overseer. And wherever you move your overseer, wherever he was before, it's kind of like, uh, hey, that's my fish. Wherever you move your overseer, wherever he started from, you're going to put down a miner. And that miner is going to collect resources for you, okay? And so if you move from a iron space and move your overseer down to a green gem space, you're going to plop a miner down in the iron space and you're going to collect an iron that turn and you're setting yourself up to collect a green uh, gemstone, an emerald, on another turn, right? Well, there's a, a neat little twist, which is that if you can move your overseer in a straight line, again, in a kind of a, hey, that's my fish style, as you pass over other players' workers, they're going to kind of defect, and they're going to start working for you now. So you might actually be able to collect two, three, four, and sometimes even five resources in one path if you can kind of get everybody lined up correctly so that when you move your overseer, you're going to flip all these guys of different players to your guys, and then you're going to collect all these massive resources. And then there's also this nice little reset where if you do have five of your workers in a row or more when your turn's over, they're going to collect resources for you, but then they kind of go on strike. And basically what that means is you have to clear them. They just walk out of the mines. So you have to clear all your miners, and then you're going to be sort of starting from scratch again, where you're basically more than likely going to be just moving your overseer one and collecting one resource, right? So that kind of part of the game is also a lot of fun. It's like a little bit of a puzzle part, and it's really something that I enjoy. I think it adds a lot to the game. So you have the, the mining to get your materials, and you have the sort of um, blueprints or plans that you have to get in order to make the weapons. Then you have to fulfill the recipe to make the weapon, and then you have to equip the hero, and then send the hero on the adventure. And you have to make sure that he or she has whatever it is that they need. Uh, a nice little touch is the fact that um, a lot of these kind of little hero counters that come included do have male and female art, which I really appreciate as the father of two girls. I, I always love it when I see that. Um, I think it's just it just makes sense, and it's something that makes the game more inviting to more people. So this is all kind of a, a neat sort of a thematic thing. Now, what are the downsides to it? Well, unfortunately, there are a few a kind of what I think are important downsides. And the first one is this. The standard game in the box does not include some of the things you've been hearing me describe. It doesn't include like the leveling up heroes when they get to level four, where they get to have a special trait. Uh, the game is over very quickly. Like before you even feel like you've gotten started, it's over. Um, and, and as you add in these other pieces, as you add in more complexity, it makes the game more interesting. But eventually what ends up happening is it, I kind of find myself stuck. Like 
the the base game the short game is like too short and the full game the epic game is like too long for me it's a little bit too much rinse and repeat because you really are kind of going through these certain steps every time you're going to kind of clear the market of the cards uh, that were there from the previous round you are going to um, you know, put out uh, uh, some new quests, all right? If people have selected quests, you're going to kind of slide them on a market, and then you're going to refill. Um, you're going to flop up some new cards. You're going to then move to the mining phase. You're going to do your mining. You're going to collect your resources. You're going to have a chance to buy and sell stuff if you want to, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. And then you're going to decide who, you know, are you going to take an adventure, if you're going to claim an adventure, then you have to be able to put somebody on it right away. You can't just claim an adventure and let it sit there, right? So then you're going to make progress on your adventures, and you know you're going to be moving your adventure markers, and you're going to be uh, hoping that you know you're continuing to move towards the completion of these quests. And then you're going to kind of reset, and you're going to do the whole thing all over again. And so there's this this kind of routine that you start to slide into um, as you go into the full game the epic game which i do think is the best because it opens up all of those other parts and pieces that i've been talking about but at the same time it almost goes on a little too long for what it is you know so you do have the ability to kind of end the game when you want you can kind of agree we're going to end after so many rounds etc cetera, etc cetera. so there are ways to kind of tweak that and customize it but I, I do kind of worry that the, the two main ways that I would think that I would be introducing this game to people, I kind of have a problem with. I have a problem with how short the, the sort of base game is, and I have a bit of a problem with how long the epic game is. And so uh, that, that's a little bit of a warning sign for me. But perhaps I think that the, the biggest problem that I have with the game is uh, the cash economy of the game. The cash economy of this game is like strangulation tight. It's really, really tight. You know, on a good turn, you might collect a few resources from your mining. And if I want to sell, you know, a copper or an iron, I'm going to get like a dollar. Um, and yet everything else costs double. So it's like, if I'm remembering correctly, like you can buy copper for two, but it only sells for one. You can buy uh, iron for three, but it only sells for two, maybe. It might even still be one. Uh, you can, you know, sell uh, a mithril uh, for this much, um, but, you know, I'm sorry, you can buy mithril, um, you know, for like four, but you're only going to get two for it. I think that's the way it goes. So um, the, the economy is really tight. It's like a 50% economy. And so what happens is, you know, it, most of the time you need the resources you get because you're trying to uh, accomplish something. You're trying to create a weapon. You're trying to create something that your heroes are going to be able to use. But... The problem is, if you want to claim some of those groovy cards in the town, in the market that I was talking about, you know, special ability cards and uh, cards that are going to give you uh, a unique weapon, a really cool, powerful weapon, and there's some really neat stuff in there, uh, they cost like $8 or $5 or $6, and trying to accumulate that much money is extremely difficult in this game. Um, I think the economy just needs to be tweaked a little bit. I think it's just a little too harsh, uh, in my opinion. Um, and so it takes some of the fun out of the game because sometimes you see these cards pop up in the market and you're like, oh my God, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. I really want that. And it's like, but it costs 10. It's like, well, not only do I not have 10, but I also... 
um, it's going to be gone at the end of this round. So it's like, okay, even if I have four or five, it's not like I can try to do a bunch of stuff to accumulate some extra money this round and next round. I'll buy it next round. No, you won't because it's gone. You know, the cards are kind of there for one round. So unless you happen to have the money that you need, when the card flop comes up, you can just kiss that tasty thing goodbye. And so that kind of bothered me a little bit too. And, and it bothered other players at the table as well because we saw these amazing things and we we're like, wow, you know, check this out. This would be so nifty. And, you know, it's like, oh, here's this weapon that functions as an axe and a mace. It's like both. It's like a mace with an axe head on it. It's like, well, I want that, right? Because some of the adventures, you need a mace. Some of you might, might need an axe. Well, this one meets the requirements for both. I totally want that. But it's like $8, and I have three. And if I sell everything I have, I'll have like six, <laughs> and it's just not enough. And so, you know, you don't get to like look at that and say, oh, wow, you know, I'll get it next turn. No, you won't because it'll be gone. And so that's a little bit of a problem that I had with it as well. So what do I think about the game overall? All right, here's what I think. I think the art and the presentation and the components are unbelievable. There is a lot of stuff in this box, and it's awesome. Uh, the artwork is fantastic. I love it. You know, hats off to Josh McDowell and, and Jeff Ward. That's great stuff. I think that the design of the game uh, by uh, Isaac Childress, I, I really like the fact that it feels more thematic to me than Lords of Waterdeep. You know, if you're going to do a recipe filling game for an adventure game, this really is it because you're kind of dealing with all of the different sort of aspects of adventuring. You got heroes, you got weaponry, you got quests, you have quests that take time. You know, this isn't just a, a one, you know, one turn thing. It's, it's an investment, you know, and then you have to manage the hero pool that you have. And so, you know, I really like that aspect of it. I like all of that. It kind of feels like it gives me a little bit of a story. Um, so all of these things are kind of the positives that I have of the game. I just kind of feel that uh, I'm a little uncertain about that economy. I'm not a big fan of the economy in the game. I think it's a little too tough. It's a little too tight. And that restriction of the economy sucks some of the fun out of the game for me. It really does because there are so many times when I think, oh man, if I could have only had a little bit more money, then I could have gotten this weapon. I could have done, you know, worked on this quest and, ooh, maybe I could have hired another adventurer because there's usually like cards that will come up in the market where it's like, oh, you can get yourself another level one adventurer for like four bucks. It's like, okay, you know, that increases my pool of available resources, right? I might be able to work on two or three quests at a time instead of just one or two. This is really nifty. But I don't have the money for it. So I kind of feel like um, in an attempt to make things valuable, the designer uh, went just a little too far. And it's, it's, just, it's just enough that it's a tipping point. You know, I, I think that with minor adjustments to that market, I think it probably would have improved the enjoyment of the experience a whole lot more. So uh, that, that's kind of, you know, my take on that. So Overall, I think it's a fun game. I think if you like this style of game, you know, if you're looking for something that's like the next step up from Lords of Waterdeep, this is definitely something you should look at. Um, however, I think you may want to adjust and tweak the game length to kind of suit you and your group. 
um, there, there's, uh, there, there's a, a happy medium in there. And I think if you kind of set it at the table before you start, you say, okay, you know, we're, we're going to go like 18 rounds or we're going to go 12 rounds or, or however many rounds you want to go so that there, it's long enough. It's not just the six, seven rounds of that base game where you just feel like you're starting to get the ball rolling and it's all over. But at the same time, it's not so long that you kind of feel like we're doing the same thing again. We're just kind of rinse and repeat. In the sweet spot there in the middle is where I think this game would really shine. So, uh, so you know, I, I think uh, there's a lot to admire about this design, but there are definitely some issues with it. And that's my review for Forge War by Isaac Childress and Cephalofair Games. <laughs> So the next games that we're going to talk about are actually a pair of games from Grail Games. Uh, these are two games. One of them is called Elevenses, and the other is 101. Uh, these are games uh, that are designed by uh, David Harding and uh, Phil Walker Harding. Uh, these are games that uh, came to us from an Australian designer, and they have really interesting themes. They're little card games, and yet the themes are kind of different, and that was kind of what attracted me to them. And so when I was contacted and they said, hey, would you like to take a look at these? I was like, sure thing. So after a little while, I received these games from Oz and uh, was more than happy to dive into them. So first up, we're going to take a look at Elevenses. Uh, this is an interesting little card game for two to four players. And it is basically a game about trying to make the best, sort of most impressive tea service that you possibly can. You know, very proper. You know, do you have the tea cart? Do you have the sugar bowl? Do you have uh, servants who are there? Do you have milk? Do you have all of these different things that are required to have a good tea, right? So right away when I heard about this game, and I first heard about it at ConCom, which is a, a local uh, convention that I go to in Connecticut every year, and that was when I first kind of heard about the game and saw uh, a early kind of print run of it. And I remember thinking like, well, that's different. I mean, somebody makes a game about tea, you know? And so I'm always interested when I see like a new theme, even if it seems something that would be kind of silly to me, um, you know, as an American uh, male, uh, you know, a, a game about tea service wouldn't normally seem like my, my cup of tea, right? Which, of course, is a horrible pun, but I put it in there anyway. Um, however, I've been watching Downton Abbey with the wife, you know, so <laughs> I figure, well, you know, why not? You know, we'll, we'll watch something about tea service, right? So uh, this is actually a really interesting kind of a game because what it involves is uh, you have a, a deck of cards, and each of those deck of cards... Uh, is exactly the same as the other players. And you're going to put these cards in an array down in front of you. And they're supposed to be in two rows of four, okay? Representing cards number two, three, four, five, and then the second row beneath it, six, seven, eight, and nine. So where's one and ten, you ask? Well, one is a special card, ten is another special card. And then you also have what's called your elevenses card. So all of these cards are going to be kind of shuffled up, and you're going to put the cards face down, eight cards face down, and you're going to have three in your hand, which is called your kitchen, okay? 
and the three cards in your hand are the ones that you're actually going to be able to play. So you don't really know what's in front of you until you start playing cards. And that's because as I play a card, um, I'm looking at the card in my hand, and let's say it is the three card. If I play that card, I have to put it in the proper position. I have to put it in the three slot where that would go. And there's these nice little handy reference cards that all the players get, which is really cool, so that you know like what number is supposed to go where. When I play that three card down in front of me, I'm going to immediately activate and use the special ability of that card. And I'm going to take the card that was in that position into my hand. So now, I, of course, I know what that card was. I have the three card in its proper position. So you're going to kind of continue to play cards, pick up cards, until you can kind of sort them and get them into their proper positions, or until you decide you're ready to end the round. The way you end the round is you're going to play your 11s as card. So how do you know whether you're going to win the round and whether or not you want to play? Well, there is a, a little spoon icon on each of the cards, okay? So some of the cards have one spoon, some have two, some even have three. Some have none, like the uh, T card. And so what you're looking to do is you must have at least four cards face up in your display, okay? And you count up the number of spoons that you have in your display. And if you have a higher number of spoons in your display than the other opponents, you can play your 11s as card, win the, you know, end the round, and of course then you're going to win that round. Okay, The winner of the round is going to get two sugar cubes. First to five sugar cubes is going to win the game. So you only need to win a couple of rounds and have a little bit of help through the use of a nice little uh, a tea trolley card that you can play. That's that number one card. And that card is going to allow you to take a sugar cube uh, regardless of whether you win the round or not. So, you know, that's like a really kind of a nifty card, but it has no spoons on it. So it doesn't really help you towards... Uh, having a majority of spoons, if you want to think of it that way, so that you can win the game, but it does help you because it's going to give you um, a sugar cube at the end of the round, pretty much guaranteed, right? So the only problem with that is that since it's not one of the cards in that display, it's not one of the eight original cards, okay, numbers two through nine, what it means is when you play that T card, you now only have two cards left in your hand in your kitchen. One of them might be the 11s's card, which means the other one is a card that you kind of now are going to be forced to play. And so sometimes you don't want to play a card because the special powers of the card might not be something that you think is going to be advantageous at that time. So these special powers can range from you can look at all your face down cards, which is really awesome if you get that in the beginning. It uh, could also be something where it says, hey, you know, look at the uh, uh, player's hand uh, to your right or to your left, uh, and you can take one of their cards if you do give them one of yours. Um, you know, it might be all players have to pass a card to their left or something like that. So there's all these different kind of uh, abilities that will really shake things up, right? And the neat thing is, is that after you played the game a few times, you really start to see some interesting ideas and strategies, right? Number one, you know, playing that servant's card, the number 10 card that's worth three spoons. Normally, that would seem like a no-brainer, but because it limits your future plays, sometimes you want to hold on to that, right? Um, sometimes if you have the ability to take a card from somebody um, and then you have to give them a card back, well, 
if I can give you a card back that's in my color, because it doesn't matter what color the card is. So let's say you have the four card down in your display, and I take a card from you, and I take your tea trolley, because I'm like, okay, cool. Now, unless someone else gives them a tea trolley, they're not going to be able to play that and get that extra sugar cube. So that's kind of awesome for me. And you know what? Here's the number four card back, because I just happen to have it in my hand. Well, that card's dead to you. You can't do anything with that card, because you've already played the four card. And so now, I've taken your tea trolley and I've actually handicapped you by giving you a card that's basically unplayable for you. Now, fortunately, there is what's called the, the arrange action that you can take. And that's where instead of playing a card face up and taking the card that was in that position, you can basically swap out cards. So, you, you know, uh, the player on their next turn, you know, you could take that four card that I gave you very nastily and you could put it in a position where you have another face down card and take that face down card into your hand. So now you've kind of buried it. And you're like, okay, I know the one in the bottom right is a number four card. I don't need it. I can just let it sit there the rest of the game. And oh, look, I picked my number one. You know, I picked my, uh, I'm sorry, my number two card. It's like, okay, cool. I, I don't have that one yet. That could be useful to me. So it doesn't like totally. Uh, hamstring the player, but it does kind of force them to waste a little bit of time, in which case hopefully you're going to be able to play some cards that are going to have enough spoons to give you the majority so that you can end the round, right? So there are definitely some opportunities here for clever play, and that's something that I really appreciate about this design. It seems like it's going to be a random chaotic thing, but after you've played it a few times, you really start to see some of the opportunities. Finally, uh, they do include in uh, the game, there's a little mini expansion that's included that's called the Guests. And at the start of every round, every player is going to be dealt a guest face down. And that guest has certain preferences. Well, what that means is, hey, I've got a card that has this guest, and they want the number two, the number seven, and the number eight card face up. So if my display ever has the two, the seven, and the eight face up in my display at that moment I can reveal my guest card and the guest card is worth spoons which is going to help me maybe swing a majority just as somebody else was about to end the game or something like that really kind of a fun little hidden information piece right because everything else is kind of open information I know how many spoons you have you know how many I have I have a pretty good idea of what cards you still have left to play and I have an idea of what cards I still have left to play and so you know, you can kind of get um, into a little bit of a staring match, you know, in this game because after you played it a while, it, there is some, there's more control, I think, than people originally think. And so it can be a real kind of back and forth, tug of war kind of thing. And these guests kind of give you that ability to surprise people, which I really like, you know, because you just kind of flip over that card. It's like, haha, now I have a majority of two. The next time the player plays, they're like, ah, all I have is my T card, my 11s card in my hand, dang it. And then you, you know, throw yours down and boom, you know, you've just won the round. So it really kind of adds something to the game that I really think is needed. And I think it's also a, a lot of fun. So. The last thing that I want to talk about with this game in this quick review of the first of these two games from this uh, designer and this uh, new company is the artwork. Um, the artist here is listed as TJ Lubrano. And I got to tell you, the artwork for this 11s is, is like awesome. It's, it's beautiful. 
um, kind of, I'm not going to say cartoony because that's going to make it sound silly. It's not. It's, it's kind of like, it's almost like looking at a catalog from back in that time, you know, um, with the, the, you know, elegant kind of dresses and the very subtle kind of palette of colors, very soft kind of colors, really, really nicely done. So, you know, if you're like me and your wife is like into Downton Abbey, like this looks like Downton Abbey, you know what I mean? Like the cards look awesome. And so I think the art is absolutely beautiful in this game. The only thing that I will say negative about the game, uh, in all honesty, is the backs of the cards are terrible. Terrible, terrible, terrible. And I don't care what anybody says about it. I heard an interview on a, another podcast, Cardboard Insanity, which is a, a really neat little podcast uh, uh, done by a friend of the show, Steve Oxenic. And he had the designer uh, on, and the designer said, yes, well, the backs of the cards were actually patterned after the tablecloths that were popular during this era. And I remember Steve being like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's really kind of cool now that I know that. And, and I, I'm kind of listening to his interview thinking, yeah, yeah, that's kind of cool, but I don't care because the backs of the cards are so terrible. Why are they terrible? You have to see them to believe them. Uh, all that I can say is that they're the player colors. No problem there. The problem is, is that they're in kind of stripe kind of patterns and they vibrate. So if, if you know what I mean by that, like you have red and white. And the stripes are really thin. They're kind of like in a zigzag kind of a pattern. And they vibrate. Like when you look at them, they kind of like, they, they almost make you a little dizzy. And it's not just me, people. I've talked to a lot of people. And they're like, oh, my God, why are the backs of the cards like this? I'm like, I don't know. So with all due respect to the designer, um, the, the backs of the cards have got to go. Please just make them a solid color or you know, have like, you know, 11s is just in writing with in the player color, anything, please, goodness, anything with those, because I think this game certainly deserves uh, a look. I think it's a lot of fun. It's thematic and it's kind of strange little way. Um, there's a lot of opportunities for clever play. The art is amazing and it's a great couples game. Uh, and it's a great kind of a, a double date kind of a game. You know, you have like some, some friends over or something. It's really a, a great game. I just I can't stand the back of the cards. Like I've thought about even trying to sleeve them just so I don't have to deal with it because uh, the reactions I've gotten to them have been pretty harsh. You know, they're like I, I can't look at them. Like they're they actually like make my head hurt. Like it's I know. You know, they're just yeah. So that's the only downside about this game, and uh, everything else about it is is something that I really enjoy. So uh, if you're looking for a great little filler game for two to four players playing in about 20-30 minutes with some interesting decisions, some clever combo possibilities, and some some depth to it, you know, you, you can't just play this once and have it. You have to play it quite a few times. I would definitely say give Elevens is a look. It's a neat little game. <laughs> So the final game we're going to take a look at tonight is uh, the second in the pair of games that was sent to me um, by Grail Games and David Harding. And this one is called 101. Uh, this is a two-player only game. And this is a game that is really interesting because, once again, it uses cards. You have two decks of cards that are exactly the same for both players. Um, one uh, side of the uh, cards has zeros on every side of the card. The other side has ones on every side of the card. And they come in either this kind of uh, whitish kind of color or a green color on a black background, like old computer screens used to look like, right? 
And so one of you is going to be the zero player, one of you is going to be the one player. And what you're attempting to do is you're attempting to write these little lines of code, okay, by playing cards in front of you in rows. When you start the game, you have these uh, cards that are set up, um, and they're set up vertically. So you have a card that says 20, 30, 40, and 50. And you're going to start the game by seeding the first two rows with cards from both players. And then the game is going to begin. You're going to have a hand of cards. And what you're going to do is on your turn, you're going to play one of those cards into the display. The only rules for playing are that there have to be, um, I believe except for the first row, um, there has to be at least four cards in a row before you can progress to the second row. The first row is going to be worth uh, a certain number of points at the end of the game. Uh, so it might be worth 20 points. And the next row is worth 30. And the next row is worth 40. And the last row is worth 50, right? The problem is, is when you get to the 50 row, which is worth the most points, uh, once you place uh, a certain number of cards, that's going to signal the end of the game, right? The other rows can have an unlimited number of cards in them. So you have this requirement of you got to have the four cards before you can start playing cards in another row. However, you can fight each other for those rows for as many cards as you want. And you can sometimes do that to try to delay the game, try to delay the starting of the 50 row. Because once people start playing any cards at a 50 row, once that opens up, the game can end very abruptly, which is really an interesting tension point in the game and something that I really like, uh, as a matter of fact. Um, now, that doesn't sound like it's really interesting, um, and that's because I haven't told you the neatest part. And the neatest part of the game is that a lot of these cards have some kind of like a little ability. And the abilities are all kind of thematic, like it might say enter or it might say delete or something of that nature. And so what happens is when you play these cards, the word uh, for the command, okay, it could be like an enter or a delete or, or you know, anything like that. They're actually going to be written on a certain side of the card. It could be at the top. It could be uh, on the left side. It could be on the right side. And how you actually have the card oriented is going to determine what card is kind of targeted. So, for example, I might put a card down that says save, and I'm going to rotate the word save so that it's next to one of my cards. And what that means is that the save card and the card next to the word save, which is one of mine, can now no longer be touched. They're kind of like immune, right? Um, whereas an enter card is going to push a card down into the next row, which is kind of nifty. Uh, you might have a card that says uh, like delete. So depending on how I, I position that card, that's going to actually get rid of a card. It could get rid of one from a row above me or a row below me or, or what have you, right? Um, so there's really interesting kinds of, of uh, effects that you can have and, and different kind of um, tug of war style kind of play. You know, there's uh, one of my favorites, which is uh, if zero go to one or if one go to zero, right? So if I'm the one player, my cards say if zero go to one. So if I position that next to a zero card, it's going to flip it. And remember, the cards are all double sided. So that zero now becomes a one, which means it's part of my kind of card now in that row. And when the game is ended, when, when you know the game finally ends, what's going to happen is you're going to look and you're going to see who has the majority in each row. So if I have the majority of you know ones in a row on the 30, uh, the 30 row, that means I have won that row and I get 30 points, right? 
uh, I let my opponents uh, get away with the 20 point and the the maybe the 40 point card, but I took the 50 and I took the 30, so I have 80 to their 60, and I win, right? So there's all kinds of interesting kind of maneuvering that you can do. Um, there is a 10 point uh, card as well. I forgot to mention I start with a 20, 30, 40, 50, but there is a 10, and so that little 10 point card, you know, right in that first row, kind of seems sort of worthless or, or innocuous or not really worth your time but I played a lot of these games where that 10 point card actually becomes really important and can swing a game so there's really no row that you can kind of completely ignore unless you're super confident about your ability to lock down the others and so you know this game is an interesting little game because of the card play. You know, I would describe it as abstract, but all of the uh, effects of the cards, the powers of the cards, are totally thematic to this old school kind of 101 kind of, uh, even the artwork is, is like the old computer screen zeros with a little line going through it and the kind of boxy, blocky kind of numbers. But it's cool because the ones are just like a, a straight bar, you know, just a straight line. And so again, you know, you can rotate these cards and the one will always look like a one, the zero will always look like a zero. And the commands are really thematic, you know, the if-then kind of commands. And the game also comes with an expansion that adds even more kind of interesting commands to the game. I haven't even tried it yet, to be honest with you. I still have plenty of fun playing the base game and think that there's uh, enough variety there that I haven't sought out anything different. Um, right now, I've been playing this with my son. He really enjoys it. I think it's very clever. Um, I, you know, it, to me, it's kind of a tough call. You know, do you prefer this? Do you prefer 11s? I, I kind of like 11s because it plays with more people. But if you're looking for a two-player, quick filler game, takes like 10 minutes to play, this game is really kind of awesome. And there's a lot of kind of thinkiness to it because you have a, a hand of cards. You've got decent amount of choices here. It's not just like, oh, I have one card, you know, and I have to play it somewhere. No, 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 no. You actually have some choices, and your deck is the same as their deck. And so you really do kind of have this ability to kind of know, you know, you can card count this one. You know, oh, well, they already played their save card here, and then, you know, this was here. So I know that if I hang on to mine, I can use this here, and I can really try to manipulate things. And so it kind of opens up some different levels. Again, surprisingly deep for such a little game. And so this is another one uh, that I really kind of think of as a winner, to be honest with you. So, uh, you know, my review of these two games um, from David Harding, uh, and his brand new company, I, I think these are really nifty card games. And so there's definitely room in my collection for them right now. And so that's my review for 101 by David Harding and Grail Games. Well, that's about all the time we have for this episode of The Long View. Uh, I will, of course, want to thank my special guest, uh, Martin Griffiths, uh, all the way over there from England, for talking with me about Virsin Das Volk. Um, you know, this is a game that I think is destined to become uh, a new classic. At least it feels that way to me. Uh, it is a game that is just absolutely fascinating to play, something you can learn from, offers a different experience each time. And so I'm really glad that Martin uh, reached out and, and decided to do the episode with me so we can talk about this great game and spread the word about Virsin Das Volk. 
Of course, I also want to thank my sponsor, GameSurplus.com. Uh, I believe they still have a few copies of the game in stock, so if you're looking for it, please be sure to tell them the long view sent you when you order. And uh, I just want to thank them for their continued support of the show. Uh, they're not only a great game store and a great online resource and with fantastic customer service, they're just good people. So I want to say thanks to GameSurplus.com for continuing to support the long view. I also, of course, want to send a special shout-out to my local game store, the Gamer's Edge in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. If you're in the Northeast PA region, please uh, hop off Interstate 80 there in Stroudsburg on Main Street and go check them out. They are a growing and uh, a wonderful resource in our region for the board gaming hobby. That's the Gamer's Edge. And, of course, I want to say thanks to the Dice Tower. Uh, the Dice Tower Network is uh, a wonderful place to check out and find more new podcasts about this hobby we all love. So go to Dicetower.com, check out their new searchable database, and see everything that they have to offer. So for Martin Griffiths and myself, I want to say thanks to everybody out there for listening, and have a great night. <laughs>